0: Amen. Let's give glory to God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, our strength, thank you for the refuge that we have found in Christ. We have run to you, Lord, because we find in you the shelter and security we need to live our lives. And we believe the psalmist when he says that apart from you, God, we have no good thing. But with you, everything in life is better. You've assigned to us our portion and our cup. Our, our boundary, Lord, is secure in Christ. The boundary lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. And so we, your people, come to you and rejoice. And thank you, God, for every good thing you've given us this week. For this chance to sing. For this chance to open your word. For this chance to live for you. We are grateful. And we pray, Lord, that you would fortify us That you would give us the strength we need today so that we may live for you tomorrow and the next day and the next. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw us close to you. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless our homes, that your peace would rest on our homes. And we ask it in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen. God is good all the time. 88% of Christian kids will leave the church when they leave home. Saw that statistic this week. It got my attention. Has it gotten yours? 80 to 88% of Christian kids will leave the church when they leave home. And I was wondering what we are going to do about that. Would you open your Bibles with me? to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. You've heard these verses before, as we've talked about being a wise church, worship, instruction, service, and evangelism. Recently, our staff came to me and said, we feel God calling us to strengthen the homes in our church, single adults, married adults, with kids, grandkids, no kids, to strengthen the homes in our church, with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And they asked me if I would preach on uh, a wise family today. And I prayed about it and felt God's leading. We'll return to Ephesians next week. Ephesians chapter 4, we're halfway through that book. But today, in a standalone sermon, I want to think with you about what we're going to do about making disciples in our own homes. Let's stand together as we hear the word of the Lord. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. A wise family writing about the 3,000 new believers and the 120 disciples who had walked with Jesus, Luke tells us in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. I underline that word, homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you. You may be seated. Sometimes study the word house or home in the book of Acts, and you'll discover how central the home was in the worship of God's people. Of course, before they ever built buildings, they worshiped, in their homes, also in the temple courts, but especially from house to house, we see this development. Somebody has said um, a PhD is learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. One of my friends wrote a dissertation on the use of the word house or home in the book of Acts, and it wasn't more and more about less and less. It um, It was substantial when he discovered that the early church took church home with them. Just consider with me that when the Spirit came at Pentecost in a rushing mighty wind, they were in the house that they gathered in in that upper room in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. They broke bread from house to house, it says in Acts 2, verse 46. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ in the temple and from house to house To house, they taught that Jesus is the Christ. When you look in Acts chapter sixteen, you find uh, in that amazing ministry in the city of Philippi that Lydia, who went down by the riverside to pray on 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 a Sunday morning, that she became a follower of Christ, and she and everybody in her household, they were all baptized. Later in that same chapter, the Philippian jailer, he and his entire family, are baptized. Together And they invite those same ones that they had beaten into, into their homes so that they can feed them and wash their wounds. And the house becomes central in the life of the church. Before there were church buildings, there were houses. And one thing we know about the early church is that they took church home with them. I wonder if we do. I read this week that only 9% of Christian families... Only 9% in a recent survey said they worship and read the Scriptures together in their homes. Now come back to my first statistic. 88% of Christian kids leave the church when they leave home. And I want you to see the connection between those two statistics. I mean to say that the early church... Took church home with them. And when their kids left home, they had the church in their DNA. It was part of who they were. And we cannot delegate the discipleship of our children to the Sunday school. We can't count on um, the church to do for us what the family was intended to do. We can't in one hour a week somehow compensate for the other 167 hours in that week when our kids are hit with this barrage of secularism and sensualism and materialism in our culture. We will have to take church home with us, or when our kids leave home, they won't have a foundation upon which to build their spiritual So let me show you four priorities, we might say four imperatives in the life of the early church. Notice that they worshiped, that they um, instructed, that they served, and they evangelized. The first imperative is worship, and I see it there in verse 42. A friend of mine was reading this, and he said, where do you find worship in that passage? I said, well, it's, it's all over it, actually. It's there in the devotion that we see in verse 42. They devoted themselves. We all devote ourselves to something. The word means to have. Fidelity to something that is greater than ourselves. It's the same word, by the way, that's used in verse 46 when it says they continued. It's the exact same word that's used in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, when it talks about the way that they prayed. That is, without ceasing, steadfastly, single mindedly, they gave themselves in faithfulness to the worship of God through the studying of the apostles' teachings, to the prayers, the fellowship, the sharing of their lives together. The breaking of bread from from house to house. They shared their lives and they devoted themselves to worship. You see it in their attitude in verse 43 when it says they lived with a constant sense of awe. You see it in their rejoicing in verse 47. It's in their attitudes. It's in their actions. It's what they did. Because worship is not just a noun. We don't just go to worship, to a house of worship. Worship is a verb. It's the way we live our lives. It's not just a designated hour of the week. It's every hour of every day. We give God His worth and we devote ourselves to Him. And everybody's devoted to something. Everybody worships something. There is worship in every house in the United States of America. The only question is who or what is the object of that worship? Recent survey of college freshmen asked them, what is most important in your life? What is the highest priority? What is your ambition for the rest of your life? And fully 78% said the most important thing to me is, do you know what they said? To make a lot of money. We want to make a lot of money. Well, what's wrong with making a lot of money? What's wrong with getting ahead in the world? But every time I ask a college student, why are you choosing that major? Why are you choosing that career? And they say to me, to make a lot of money. My next question is, why? Why do you want to make a lot of money? And their answer to that question will tell me something about whom they worship or whom they don't worship. Because if they say to me, I want to make a lot of money because I just like living a lavish lifestyle. I want to make a lot of money because everybody else is making a lot of money. I want to make a lot of money so I can drive the nicest car, live in the nicest house, and, and wear the nicest clothes. Then I would say to them, then, then you're telling me that you're worshiping Yourself and everybody worships something. Did you know they did a study? And neurologists scanned human brains and asked them to think about, asked the people that they were scanning to think about spiritual things. And they discovered a little God spot in the brain, they called it. Initially, they called it a God spot. It's the caudate nucleus. And when people thought about their favorite hymn or their favorite scripture or accepting Christ or stained glass or beautiful music in worship, that area of their brain lit up on the scan. Then they surveyed another group of people, materialists we might call them, and said to them, think about the nicest automobile that you want to drive. Think about the neighborhood in which you want to live. Think about the kind of clothes, the hottest fashions, the coolest styles, the things you want to wear, the, the, your favorite entertainer or entertainment. And what they discovered was, on the neurological scan of the brain, the exact same spot lit up. Because everybody worships something. And all you've got to figure out is who are you Going to worship. I read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this week, the Apostle Paul, you know, when you get to the end of your life, you get serious, don't you? There was serious work still to do. In his last letter of his life, he writes to Timothy and says, in the last days, things are going to be really bad. And then he tells us why. Because he says people will be lovers of themselves. They will be lovers of money. They will be lovers of pleasure. And they will not be lovers of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. If God has all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, well then there's not room in your life to, to devote yourself to love lesser things because God becomes first then he puts everything in our lives in perspective he helps us to have the right priorities in our lives I'm challenging us to love God first and best so that we don't get caught up in the idolatry of the world as John calls it in first John chapter two the the uh, lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh and the pride of life the cravings of the sinful man the NIV has it the uh, lust of our eyes and the the pride in in what we have and what we do. We don't want to get caught up in that, that sort of dangerous exchange that Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 when he says, You've made three very bad trades. He says, If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have exchanged the Creator for His creation, you've exchanged the truth for a lie, you have exchanged natural relationships. For unnatural relationships. It it feels as though they were reading our email. As though they had access to the internet. When they write these things, it's like they're describing a world that was 2,000 years in the future from them because exactly what the Scripture has said has come true. People love themselves. They they love their stuff. They love pleasure. And as a result, our hearts have been swept away, and we no longer love God as we ought to. To whom or what are we devoted? Worship is devotion. Worship is sometimes confrontation. Uh, Some people will say, well, no, worship is about celebration. I like worship to make me feel good. And then we read in Isaiah chapter 6, and we see... We see the great prophet Isaiah falling on his face before God. And he doesn't say about worship, wow, when he went to the temple. He says, whoa, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm, I'm, I'm disintegrating. I am coming apart at the seams, he says, because my eyes have seen the king. The more we see of God, the more he confronts us. Gardner Taylor says, worship is when I bring all the idols that I have made into the presence of the God who has made me. Are you worshiping this morning? Can can you take all your idols? Why did Jacob say to his family before he meets God, why does he say to him, get rid of all your idols? Because you can't bring those into the presence of the God who made us. You You can't keep worshiping lesser things when there is one who is greater, when there is worthy of your ultimate devotion, the one who confronts all that is wrong in our lives and helps us to celebrate all that is right. So in verse 47 it says they're always rejoicing. And I just want you to notice they were rejoicing in God, in the God who saves. We rejoice in so many lesser things. Tell me what makes you really really. Really, really happy and I'll tell you what you really 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 worship and when all of our entertainment falls by the wayside God will still be on his throne he will still be God so so don't get caught up with the temporal when there is after all the eternal don't get caught up in the ephemeral when there is something that is celestial don't get caught up in in this world when when this world is not our home we're just passing through And he invites us to a worship in which others catch us in adoration. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. He says, it may be that an unbeliever sits down among you while you're worshiping. And when they hear the truth, and they see you loving God with all that you are, they will say, God is among you. And they will be convicted of their own sin. And they will have the chance to follow Jesus Christ. So worship is the first imperative. The second imperative is instruct Teach the truth in your home. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in verse 42. Then in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says, In their houses, they never stopped teaching and preaching what? The good news. That Jesus is the Christ. So they centered their homes in the instruction of who Jesus Christ is. I'm reading a biography right now of George W. Truett, the great pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. Some would say uh, the pastor of Texas. Some would say the pastor of America back in those days. He had this amazing nationwide ministry. And in one of his sermons, he was talking to his congregation, and he said, The loss of piety in our homes will be the undoing of this country. The fact that we no longer worship in our homes, he said, will be the undoing of this country. He said, we have, delegated, we have delegated the instruction of our children to the Sunday school for one hour a week. Whatever happened, he said, to the family prayer altar. Whatever happened to family devotions. Whatever happened, he said, to singing great hymns of worship together with your families. And I read that and I thought he could have been, he he said that in 1920. That was 90 years ago. But he was talking to us. His words ring true today that you and I must teach the truth about who Jesus Christ is to our children. Because if we don't instruct them, believe me when I say, the world will. Because the world around us is constantly teaching our children through the hours that they watch television, through the video games that they play, through the internet, through their emails, through their conversations on their phones, and text with their friends. They are forever getting an education. And how can we neglect? How can we delegate the spiritual instruction of our children? I love our Sunday school teachers. But Carol has said to me, and I agree, we, we can't do this for families. We'll equip you to do it, but you've got to teach the Bible. And I'll just confess to you, we've not been as good at that as I wish we had been. I'm not up here telling you do what I have done. I'm saying to you, let's get this right together going forward. And so, and so every night with with Casey, I'm I'm reading through. Uh, um, a a children's Bible with her. And the truth is some nights we've missed and and then we make sure we do it the next night. But we're trying as hard as we can to put the scriptures before her. And it's amazing because she's never heard the scriptures. And so when we read a story, she'll say to me, did that really happen? Yeah, that really happened. Well, why is God like that? She will ask. And I say, Melanie, come here. (laughs) I need help with this one. You know, the truth is we've got to keep teaching our kids and instructing them because... It's the truth of Scripture that confronts the falsehood in our culture. Let me just give you an example from my own life, because uh, you know, I want you to know, 99% of the time when I'm listening to music, it's Christian music. But every once in a while, I listen to love songs, you know, to Michael Buble, or, um, you know, I just date myself here, the Commodores, or uh, um, Lionel Richie, or James Taylor. I'm just confessing my sins before you today, and uh, this week, I was listening to James Taylor. I remember with my brother driving down the road in, in our 1968 Ford Mustang, listening to James Taylor, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm listening to this as I'm jogging on the bayou, and I'm still thinking about it and uh, you, know, you know great brilliant lyrics like whenever I see your smiling face I have to smile myself because I love you and when you give me that pretty little pout it turns me inside out there's something about you baby I don't know isn't it and this great lyrics isn't it amazing a man like me can feel this way and I'm walking up into the stairwell you know and you got great acoustics in the stairwell and I just start singing as I'm walking up to my office on Thursday morning no one can tell me that I'm doing wrong no one can tell me that I'm doing wrong today and I just heard what I said and thought no one no one can tell me I'm doing wrong. I mean, God could tell me that I'm doing wrong, couldn't he? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And the truth that I knew from God's word confronted the untruth that the culture had planted in my brain while I was listening to the music. And I, I mean, I still like James Taylor, but I can't sing that song like it's truth. Because it's not really truth. Because there is someone who can tell me that I'm doing wrong. And just watch. It's not even subtle anymore. Watch the television. Watch the movies. And see the way they are reshaping the values and the norms and the understanding of our kids. And if our kids don't have a a gold standard, if they don't have an absolute in a world that says, do what's right in your own eyes. we're, We're very much like the days of the judges. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And what may be right for you may be wrong for me. What may be right for me may be wrong for you. No, no, no. There is an absolute standard. And we have to teach our children the truth. So that when they face falsehood, they will know the difference between the two. The third imperative is to serve. It says that they, they ate together in their homes. I think that's been lost in our families these days. Sometimes we don't sit down. Remember last time you, you only ate? You didn't eat and do something else? Eat and watch the game or eat and watch the TV show or eat and, and uh, work on your phone on the same, at the same time and check your email? no they ate together with glad and sincere hearts the word sincere means simplicity there was just a there was an uncomplicated way of life for them it sounds refreshing, doesn't it? It sounds like something we need. And, and as they did that, they shared with each other. So nobody said what was his was his own. Verses 44 and 45. But they, they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to everybody else so that there were, Acts chapter 4 verse 32 tells us, there were no needy people among them because all the needs were met. This is a Christian value that we care about the poor around us. And can I just tell you, test everything by the scripture. Test what I say by the scripture. Be like the Bereans and make sure that this is true. But isn't it Scripture, va- scriptural value that we serve each other and we care for the poor. So Ambrose in the uh, early centuries of the church would say, your brother is standing beside you naked and crying and you're trying to figure out what kind of carpet you're going to put on your floor. That's the church in the 4th century. He said, um, Basil the Great said in 4th in, uh, century, what is today Turkey, the Asia Minor, um, he said to the church there, the um, Food that you don't eat is the food with which you should feed the poor. The garment that's hanging in your closet that you don't wear, that's to clothe the naked. The shoes you don't wear are for the people who don't have any shoes. The money you've been storing up, that's to care for those who don't have any money. That's a Christian virtue. See, I don't care whether it, you know, just test it. I mean, you know, I don't care if it's Oprah or it's O'Reilly or it's The View or it's Beck. Check it against Scripture. And if there's a divergence between the two, go with Scripture. D- don't, don't go with you know Dwayne's good some of the time, God's good all the time. It's not uh, Test what I say. Test what anybody says. Don't get caught up in the trappings of this culture that tell you this is the way life is. Listen to the word of God. And the word of God says we're supposed to serve each other. And I see you doing that. I think about George Bruner as we come close to Thanksgiving, and all the families to which George and novice give those turkeys every year. I think about the the mission centers and and Ginger Smith and the work that she's doing down there and how Tallawood is head over heels involved in that ministry. We have been for generations, but the next generation needs to catch that. I think about Phyllis Fritch who sat right back here until about a month ago when she went home to be with the Lord unexpectedly in a car accident and how she directed our first graders in Sunday school and how she went down to the prisons and cared for those women who were in jail. I asked somebody, I said, where did she get into that? If you knew Phyllis, you know, I just said, how did she get into that? Well, it was over in Scotland, and she said the prisons over there were a lot worse. And here's a lady who's caring for first graders and prisoners, And where would she get the idea to serve like that except from the scriptures that tell us that Jesus said I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when we're worshiping and instructing and serving in the home and teaching our kids that life's not about being served but about serving other people, then the scripture says that while they were doing that in their homes... The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So people were being saved in their homes. It, make it a, a goal that in your own family that everybody will be a follower of Jesus Christ. And then start talking to your neighbors about it. This is the way the good news of, of Jesus Christ has spread. So in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, the word evangelize is there. It says they never stopped in their homes evangelizing that Jesus Is the Christ. That is, they were telling, proclaiming, teaching the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And they told that message over and over again. And in part, we're here today because they did it so well, because the gospel went out, the good news went out. Look, they weren't just more moral. It's not that these early believers were just moralists who just said, you know, we're better. or well, let's all try a little harder to do a little bit better. No, that's not it. They knew they were sinners and they knew that God had an answer for their sin and that he had sent his son to be their savior. And they told everybody that because everybody they knew and everybody we know needs to know that there is an answer for our sin sin and Jesus Christ is the answer for our sin Jesus is the answer for the world today above him there is no other Jesus is the way the truth and the life and this message must be told in Houston Texas in 2010 because it's the only hope for the people who are trying desperately to fill their lives with something and still finding that they're empty until they find that their restlessness is only resolved in relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And God doesn't have any grandchildren. So everybody's got to know this for themselves. I've got a, a friend who's a, a prominent uh, a lobbyist. Um, and he's the son of a prominent pastor. And, and he was justifying his own bad behavior recently and said, I'm a lobbyist. I sold my soul a long time ago. And one of my friends said to him, yeah, well, we're hoping you get it back. We're hoping you get your soul back because you don't want to sell your soul. I've got another friend who was trying to convince me the other day. He said, you, you can't know. He said, I'm so Baptist. He said, I was christened as a Baptist. I said, I doubt it. He said, you're doubting my Baptist heritage. I said, no, no, I just doubt, I'm just doubting that you were christened as a, as, a, as a Baptist. He said, I was christened as a Baptist in North Carolina. I said, Really? Tell me about that. He said, well, my parents walked forward and they dedicated me to the Lord. I said, oh, you were dedicated, but you weren't christened. Because what happened here and what happened in Acts chapter 16 when Lydia made sure her whole family was baptized and when the Philippian jailer led his whole family to Christ and they were all baptized, it wasn't. I just want to be clear about this. They weren't just sprinkling those babies with water. No, no, no. But the ones who were old enough to receive Christ as Savior... We're putting their trust in Him. And as a result of that, they were following Him in believers' baptism by immersion. We Baptists don't get everything right, but believe me when I say we got this one right. We are right about this because it's what the Scripture teaches. That baptism, every family ought to dedicate their kids to God. But our prayer is that at some point, they'll own it for themselves. We've been baptized kids who come from generations of believers this morning. Uh, li- little Wyatt Miller, whose grandparents and parents love the Lord, and now he loves the Lord as well, as well as his, his older brother uh, Colton loves the Lord, and uh, and little Logan and, and, and Kate Dodge, whose who's mom and dad, Greg and Jennifer, love the Lord. But there was a grandmother here all the way from Dauphin Way Baptist Church in Alabama. I'm just telling you that from generation to generation, our prayer is that our kids will own faith for themselves so that they believe in jesus christ so that they will have the gospel in them they will know the good news and they will live their lives rejoicing because god has saved them this is my prayer for our homes from house to house from this house to your house and i tell you it can happen because i when i was standing in that intensive care room looking at jerry fritch my friend who was sitting back here just about a month ago and he was hooked up to all those tubes. And, and, and we were wondering at that moment. We didn't know the medical report. We, didn't, we hadn't heard yet from the doctors what his prognosis was. And I'm standing there with his son. And I've just met him for the very first time. And this young man has just lost his mother in a car accident. And he's just come all the way from Canada to see his father. And doesn't know whether his father's going to live or die. And he looks at me and he says, Pastor, I've been to your church. And we've got to start praying right now that God will use this tragedy... So that other members of our family who don't know Jesus Christ will become Christians through this tragedy. That God will get glory. That his word will go out. That his kingdom will be advanced. And I walked out of that room shaking my head wondering what makes a 30-year-old young man think like that. And then I remembered his mom, Phyllis. The same one who's been working with our first graders and with the ladies in prison. We got letters from those ladies in prison this week telling us about the ministry of Phyllis and them. And one of them said... I'm so sad she's gone, but now I've come to be a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, when we get this right, not only will we change, but the world is going to change. And our kids aren't going to be part of that 88% or maybe that 88% statistic will go down when you and I begin to live what we believe and we become intentional. And so four times in the next year, we're going to ask you to join us in serious seminars in which we are equipped as a church family. To do this better than we have done this so that our kids when they leave home won't leave the church would you pray with me father thank you for your amazing love and grace and your presence in this place lord we confess we need you we can't live without you lord we need you now and so i pray that you'd help us to turn to you To believe the gospel, Lord. To preach the gospel to ourselves. That when we sin, we don't try to clean up the mess ourselves. But instead, we run to you who sent your only son to die for us. So that we can be forgiven. So that we can forgive others. So that we don't look at people in our culture who disagree with us as our enemies and hate them. But instead, Lord, we love everybody. Because you loved us first. First. We love you first, and then we love everybody else because we love you. Help us to live what we believe. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.